Amen. Well, hey, great to sing those songs that, uh, as Dane said, come from the throne room of God where everybody sees uh, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man for who they are, and we cry out, holy, holy, and worthy. So um, we are going to study that a little bit more. Um, but before we do that, let's go ahead and dismiss kids to children's church. So grade six and down, we've got something special planned for you. And as Steve mentioned earlier, um, this week is Vacation Bible School Week around here, which is uh, tons of fun. Um, so a couple things. One is, please be praying for that. When you drive by the church, when you think of the church, be praying for uh, the 300 plus kids that are going to be here, plus the 100 or so volunteers. Um, And I'll also mention, in case I forget at the end of the service, um, we're going to need a few hands to help move all these chairs out, because it's going to be like an anthill in here. And uh, so at the end of the service, if I forget, um, we need a few people to help kind of stack chairs um, and do that. So, well, hey, great to be um, together with you this morning. I'm Glenn uh, Barnes. If I don't know you, I look forward to getting to know you. Uh, but I got to tell you that it was way back in 1995, so a few years ago now, um, that the first of the wildly popular Left Behind books came out. So the Left Behind books were these page-turning uh, fictional stories based on the author's understanding of how kind of the end times events that are described in the Bible might work themselves out um, in modern day events. And so I'm just curious, I know you got to be old enough, but how many of you either read or read those books or watched those movies? Come on, I I know more of you did. Yeah, like I said, they were wildly popular. In fact, uh, there was a time there when the top four spots on the New York Times bestseller list were all of the four first um, left behind um, books. So people were really into these things. And I've shared with some of you before, I actually remember the place that I was when I first read that first um, left behind book. And um, I was a young pastor and um, the book begins, you may remember this, the book begins with the trumpet blast of God and then the, the rapture of the church. So in other words, the trumpet sounds and those that are the true followers of Jesus are caught up into heaven um, to be with God in heaven. And those that are not uh, believers are left behind to endure the, the great tribulation. And so that's a very scary concept. Nobody wants to be a part of that um, at all. So anyways, I remember reading this book, and um, the, one of the main characters who actually misses the, the rapture and is left behind is this young pastor. And he's actually got a, a godly wife, and they're in bed, and his wife is like raptured right up out of bed, and he is left in bed reading this um, sports magazine. And I still remember that and thinking, well, that seems kind of weird because, well, I'm a young pastor, and... I've got a godly wife, and a little known fact, I used to love to read Sports Illustrated pretty much every night um, in bed before I went to sleep. And so I'm reading this, and I think that seems kind of familiar, but to make matters worse, some of you might know where I'm going with this, does anybody remember the guy's name? Pastor, no, it's not Glenn, but Pastor Barnes is the guy who gets left behind, Pastor Barnes. And I remember thinking, how could that be? And to make matters worse, there's actually one other main character that is left behind. He's an airline pilot. Do you remember his name? Captain Steele gets left behind. So Barnes and Steele get left behind. And 
Some of you, if you need a minute to find a new church, that's, we totally get that. We're, you know, we're with you. But I remember reading that and it really, I mean, it would hit me hard. And, and, and I, I remember I was like, you know, on my knees, confessing my sins, you know, real and imagined. I mean, I was confessing stuff that I might do and um, uh, asking Jesus into my heart for like the hundredth time because I remember thinking, how could this be? How could, you know, Jenny get raptured and Pastor Barnes get left behind? I mean, we could all see steel getting left behind. But, but not Pastor Barnes. And of course, I'm joking about that. But I actually do remember that as I read those books, it was a time of kind of great spiritual growth for me because I, I just was kind of challenged by these things and wanted so much to lean in, to be close to God and, and to make sure that I was in a right relationship with him. And, and it was a time where I kind of worked on my character, this pastor had just been kind of going through the motions. He was kind of a fake. And, and, and so I just, it was a really convicting time um, for me. And I've always known um, that Jesus tells us, and Jesus Jesus is very clear. There, there's some things that Jesus is not clear about or the Bible is not, not clear about. But one thing that Jesus is very clear about is that he will come back. And he actually says, nobody knows the day or the hour. And so he says, he will come like a thief in the night. And his point is, you need to be ready. You need to always be ready for the Lord's return. And so this morning, we are coming to the end of our study of the book of Daniel. If you've been around for the last several weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Daniel. And today's message is called, How to Be Ready for the End of the World. So if you know the book of Daniel, or you've gotten to know it over these last six weeks, you know that the first six chapters, Daniel 1 through 6, are all these kind of unique stories or individual stories about Daniel and his friends and how they not only survive, but they actually thrive living as exiles in the very ungodly Babylonian culture. And one of the things that we're to take away from Daniel 1 through 6 is that we can live with hope and we can trust God because we know that God is in control no matter what. That's one of the main themes, right? All these crazy things happen to Daniel and their friends and yet still they are faithful, and God is with them, and God is in control. Then, if you know the book, you come to chapter 7, and there's a dramatic change in the book of Daniel, because chapters 7 through 12 are not stories about Daniel, but they're actually these visions or these dreams that God gives to Daniel about primarily future things still to come, what you would call apocalyptic uh, visions. And yet here's the thing. What's the main point of chapters 7 through 12 are also to encourage us, to, to put our hope and our trust in God, because no matter what, God is in control. And we're going to see Daniel has these visions about all sorts of wild and, and scary things. And yet through it all, God is in control and God um, wins. So today, instead of spending the next kind of six or so weeks going through all of Daniel's vision, our message today is going to be more of an overview of not only Daniel's prophecies, but really kind of some thoughts on how to approach any of the end times kind of a prophecies or events that we see described um, in different places throughout the Bible. Now, 
I know that's going to be disappointing to some of you because there are some that love to dig into every detail and, and all of those things. Um, and, and so I understand that. Um, but Pastor Dane also reminded me that, that many people will actually be very, very thankful to do this kind of overview approach that I said will cover Daniel 7 through 12, but also kind of a big picture thing. So Daniel 7 through 12 falls into a category that we call apocalyptic literature. And you might want to grab out your message notes to follow along here because this genre is different than some of the other things that we see. The Bible is written with all kinds of different genres. And uh, it's not uh, just even unique to the Bible, but we find it in Daniel. We also find it in places like Ezekiel and Zechariah. Some of Jesus's own teaching could be considered this. And then, of course, the book of Revelation is considered apocalyptic literature. In fact, the book of Revelation, its literal name in Greek is the is the apocalypse. Um, Because apocalypse, unlike what most of us think of in kind of modern American culture, doesn't mean the end. We usually think apocalypse means the end of the world. What apocalypse literally means is to reveal or uncover something. In fact, there's this great resource out there to help understand uh, books of the Bible, genres of the Bible, things like that, called The Bible Project. If you've not seen any of The Bible Project videos, I really encourage you to take a look at them. Um, And let me just show you a couple minutes of what The Bible Project says about apocalyptic literature, and then you can watch the rest of it on your own. But let's take a look at this little video here. It's the end of the world. The moon turns to blood, mountains crumble, mutant locusts swarm. These are just some of the strange images we find in parts of the Bible called apocalyptic. And while most people think the biblical word apocalypse means the end of the world, it actually doesn't mean that at all. So let's talk about how to read apocalyptic literature in the Bible. So wait, the apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world? No. Apocalypse is a Greek word that means to uncover or reveal. An apocalypse is when you suddenly see the true nature of something that you couldn't see before. Because I don't always see things the way they really are. Right. We all develop familiar ways of seeing the world that can limit or blur our vision. So an apocalypse is like a revelation. Right. Now, in the Bible, an apocalypse is when God pulls back the curtain to show someone what's really going on in the world from a divine perspective. For example... Take Isaiah the prophet. He's suddenly transported in a vision into God's throne room. Oh, right. He's in God's temple, described as a bridge between heaven and earth. And there, God gives him a divine perspective on Israel's past, present, and their future. So that Isaiah can bring challenge and comfort to God's people in his own day. Or think about the Apostle Paul, who was trying to stop the movement of Jesus, but then he gets stopped in his tracks by a vision of the risen Jesus himself. Yeah, he realizes that he's fighting against the very thing that he's been hoping for, and it changes the course of his life. So these apocalypses give people a heavenly perspective on their earthly situation, and they can give hope, or they can challenge you. Or make you change everything. Now, those are biblical stories about people having an apocalypse. There are also whole sections of biblical books where a prophet describes extended apocalyptic dreams and visions. People call this apocalyptic literature. And reading these dreams and visions is difficult. I mean, they're filled with strange images. Like, let's take Daniel. He sees ferocious beasts coming up out of a dark sea, trampling people on the land. And then a character called the Son of Man is exalted to rule the world. 
what is going on. Yeah. All right, so you can watch the rest of that, but that kind of introduces this idea of apocalyptic uh, literature, which our passage is um, today. It means to be revealed or to uncovered, uh, have be uncovered, and that's what happens to Daniel. God gives him these dreams, these visions that kind of pull back the curtain and allow Daniel to see what is going on from in the spiritual realms in different parts of, of history. But the other characteristic of apocalyptic literature that they just mentioned there uh, that makes it very difficult to understand is apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic and figurative. And there's all kinds of images that God uses very intentionally so that we could understand the message that he's trying to to get across. But they can be uh, difficult to to understand and sometimes downright um, even scary. And this is especially true of Daniel. Because let's be honest, the book of Daniel contain some of the more difficult uh, passages in all of the Bible um, to understand. And yet, here is the irony. While these end times passages tend to be kind of difficult for, for us to understand and interpret, they also tend to be some of the stuff that Christians throughout history have been the most dogmatic about and put their foot down the most. In fact, uh, throughout history, it's not quite at the same level it has been in the past, but whole churches, whole denominations have not only thought about what these images mean, but they've actually even divided at times. And so uh, tend, they tend to be things that people are very dogmatic about. Now, ironically, most of us, uh, our understanding of things are based not even on our own reading of Scripture, but what other people um, have said, which, which is fine. We need scholars and, and others that maybe have a better understanding of some of these things, um, but they're not necessarily based on even our own reading of the biblical text. And the other thing that's not okay is oftentimes we kind of pull out just a few verses here and there and tend to build whole timelines and whole kind of theological systems that are based on just a few things here and there. So what I want to do today is going to be a little bit different, and I hope it's going to work. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Um, But we are going to actually read together all of Daniel chapter 7. It's actually one of the more important and classic uh, chapters uh, of this kind of of literature. And what we're going to do is we're going to read the whole thing together. It's going to take a while, probably five, six minutes for us to read it um, together. And then we are going to look at some of the details that we read, as well as some of the big picture ideas that are true about not only Daniel 7, but as I said, about most kind of end times prophecy that we find in the Bible. So, Buckle up, um, because we are going to read this whole thing, and if you are new to the Bible, uh, hopefully this will be a a real uh, educational time for us together, and let's read Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read all the way through verse 28, and it goes like this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was laying in bed. And he wrote down the substance of his dream. And this is what he wrote. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. And four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Now it's important to know here that a lot of times in this kind of literature and throughout much of the Bible, the sea or the ocean represents chaos, represents turmoil. A lot of us, for us, the beach is you know a place of peace, but for those ancient cultures, it was a place of 
of chaos and turmoil and danger. And so that was really true um, for them. In fact, when you get to the book of Revelation, we see a new heaven and a new earth. It says there will no longer be any sea. And so we see that out of the turmoil and the chaos of the sea come these four beasts. And this is how he describes them. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And then there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Verse 6, after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. And these beasts had, this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. But then after that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and it devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other beasts, and it had ten horns. Well, I was thinking about the horns. There before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And so this little horn stands out as, as different. And we should probably pay attention um, to that. Because then it says in verse 9, after speaking boastfully, it says, And then I looked, and thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was as white as the snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court, because this is like a courtroom scene, was seated, and the books were opened. And then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had, stripped, had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. By the way, God is the one who rides on clouds. Only God rides on clouds. So when a son of man or someone different comes in riding on the clouds, you should take note of that because a son of man comes in riding on the clouds and and he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power and all the nations and people of every language worshipped him. By the way, throughout Daniel, we've seen whenever they get it right and the the king comes to worship God, what is their declaration? That all the nations and all the languages will worship him. And that's what's happening with the son of man. Because he's given authority and glory and sovereign power, Uh, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Destroyed. And I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me, you think? I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me, and he gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. And ever. That's a good verse to underline. The, the people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever and ever. 
Verse 19, then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that had come up before, which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes uh, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. And it will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are the ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will rise, different from the earlier ones. And he will subdue do three kings. He will speak against the Most High and will oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever." Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale, but I kept this matter to myself. All right, everybody good? Let's close in prayer and head home, huh? No, let's, uh, let's dig into that. So as I said, Daniel 7 is really this classic piece of apocalyptic uh, literature. And it's tempting to want to, you know, define all of every little detail. But as I said, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of that, but also offer some kind of three kind of broader truths, bigger truths from Daniel 7 and for most uh, all end times prophecies. And the first truth is this. You see these so clearly in Daniel 7, and that is this. Until the end, there will always be turmoil on the earth. There's always going to be trouble. There's always going to be strife. There will always be turmoil on the earth. In fact, that's actually one of the main themes that we've seen in Daniel's chapter 1 through 6. Time and time again, Daniel and his friends are what? They're just faithful to God, obedient to God. And yet kingdom and kings rise up and there's all of this chaos around them. Daniel actually rises to power under three completely different kings. And remember this, put this deep in your heart when it comes to understanding this and all of this literature. Earthly kings and earthly kingdoms come and go, but the ancient of days and the Son of Man transcend all of the chaos. The the Son of Man and the ancient of days always transcend all of that. We tend to keep our eyes on the chaos. But I think sometimes God says, keep your eyes on me. So Daniel's vision includes these four beasts coming out of the chaos and the turmoil of uh, the sea. And while these were future visions for Daniel, he's describing things that were yet to come. Most scholars will tell you that a fulfillment of these things has already happened in the past. So let me just talk through these four uh, different beasts that he sees. The first beast is one that is like a flying lion. And this represents the Babylonian Empire. 
Empire or the current regime that uh, Daniel is living under. So the wings getting torn off in that um, actually represent God humbling Nebuchadnezzar when he goes insane. Remember, there's that time where Nebuchadnezzar kind of falls apart. Uh, But then after that, he's lifted up and restored, which represents Nebuchadnezzar coming to his senses and more importantly, coming to faith in God. The next beast is the bear. The bear represents the Medes and the Persians, which is uh, the next world power that comes. Daniel also lives some of his life under the the Medes and the Persians. Uh, The one side of the bear is bigger than the other. Most people believe that's because the Persians were much stronger um, than the Medes, but that's the next beast that is allowed to rise and devour things. But then, not long after that, a third beast comes and replaces that, and this is one that looks like a leopard. And this leopard has four wings and four heads, and it represents the Greek empire that would eventually kind of rule over the world, specifically under Alexander the Great. And the leopard speaks of the power and the speed that Alexander and the Greeks would overtake the world. And that's what happens. If you read any history, they can't believe how rapidly uh, Alexander's armies conquer so much of the world. In fact, he pretty much rules all of the known world by the time he's about 30 years old. And that is represented by this leopard in the, the vision that Daniel has. And then the next one comes after that. And this one, he can't even, he doesn't even have an animal to match it up with. He just calls it an indescribable, terrifying beast, and it represents the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire would eventually even overshadow uh, the Greeks. The ten horns, as it says, represent the ten powers and the, the different leaders of Rome. But remember, we also had our eye on this one little horn, this one that was different and rises up and boasts against um, God's people. He's cunning and he's got a violent nature, especially towards um, God's people. Most scholars would see this little horn as the Antichrist, what we know as the Antichrist. Now, there is also a literal and historic fulfillment of this um, in a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He was one of the horns. He was one of the Roman leaders. And Antiochus Epiphanes uh, looked maybe a little bit like that, and he was a madman. In fact, the name Epiphanes he gave to himself, it literally means Antiochus is a god or Antiochus is divine. Antiochus is sometimes known as the Hitler of the Old Testament because of the hatred that he has specifically towards the Jews. He marches down, brings his army into Jerusalem to rule Jerusalem and kills 80,000 Jews basically at one time when he invades the city. He comes into the city and he sets up a statue of himself among the holy places. And worst of all, he goes into the temple, into the holy of holies, into the throne room, and he, he sacrifices pigs on an altar to Zeus in the temple of God. And so that's why they call this guy sometimes the abomination that causes desolation or the abomination of desolation. And so in a very real way, all of those images that we just read in Daniel chapter 7 are prophecies that at some level have been fulfilled. 
And yet we also know that there is turmoil ahead because there's always going to be turmoil ahead. In fact, Jesus and his apostles who understood Antiochus Epiphanes also talk about another coming Antichrist and even talk about kind of a spirit of Antichrist that can be present in any day. Why do I say that? Look at what 1 John, 1 John, when Jesus' apostles says this, he says, this is the last hour. He recognized the days that he was living in were what we would call those, those end times when, when we need to live ready. And he says, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists have come. And John wrote that, of course, about 2,000 years ago now. So a key takeaway from all of this, uh, the rise and fall of these powers, is until the end of time, the earth will always be full of turmoil. In fact, think about what we just read. Now, we want to be people that are always working for good. We want to be people that see God's kingdom ushered in. We want to take a stand for the things of God. But we also don't have to put our hopes in those things because we see that God is in control. And, is, and not only is, is God not caught off guard by the things of this world, but God is in control in a much bigger way than any king or any kingdom. In fact, one by one, look at Daniel 7, one by one, the beasts come and the beasts go, and another beast comes and another beast goes, and another beast comes and another beast goes. But who stands firm? The Ancient of Days, the one who is always there before them and will always be there after them, unchanged in his power and his glory and his majesty. So that's one of the things we see in Daniel 7, but we see it throughout the Bible on these things. So the Ancient of Days there seated on the throne, but there's also the Son of Man that we need to think about. And that brings us to the second kind of main point, and you might want to jot this down in your notes, and that is that Jesus, who is the Son of Man, is greater than everything. When it comes to any of these writings in the Bible, Jesus is going to be greater than everything. In fact, if you think about it, Daniel had these visions some 500 years before the coming of Christ. And yet his vision has not only a Messiah, but this son of man that is central to it all. It's actually fascinating study in Daniel chapter seven, or Daniel chapter 9. We're not going to look at the details um, this morning. But Daniel not only has this prophecy about the coming Messiah that he speaks of in several times, but he also kind of gives a, a, a time frame that, that most scholars, if you kind of look at this thing compared to the rebuilding of the temple, would say that it actually directs you to the, pretty much the exact timeline of when Jesus would have entered Jerusalem on what we know as Palm Sunday. Remember that day when Jesus comes in and they recognize him as king. Now Jesus is there to go to the cross, but Daniel in, in a very clear and, and specific way um, addresses that. And yet while the dates and the details have been debated through the years, here is what you cannot debate. The Son of Man, Jesus, is the central figure in human history, including the central figures of all things at the end. In fact, let's look again at Daniel chapter 7, uh, which has all the chaos of the terrifying beasts coming and going, all the uncertainty and devastation connected to them, and yet look at verse 13, what it says. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds. He approached the ancient of days, and he was led into his presence. And, and we sing these words. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all the nations and the people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting 
supreme dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom, compared to all the other kingdoms, is one that will never be destroyed. And so that is uh, what is said about the Son of Man, that he's worthy of all this power and glory. And then when Jesus comes as the Messiah, what is the favorite term that Jesus often uses to refer to himself? Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which was a pretty bold thing to say based on what Daniel wrote there. And all of his disciples and all of the people that understood Daniel 7 looked and heard Jesus call himself the Son of Man, and they thought, all right, this is the one to receive glory and honor and power and dominion. And it's true. But what does Jesus do? He blows their mind by saying things like this. But you know, the Son of Man he didn't come to, to be served. He deserves to be served, absolutely. But he didn't come to be served. He came to serve and, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, the Son of Man, man, he loves this world. He came to seek and to save the lost. And so Jesus' disciples heard Son of Man, and they wanted to look for someone who was like the lion from the tribe of Judah. But instead, what they often saw was Jesus behaving like the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why is that significant? Because you have Daniel's prophecy, and then you fast forward into the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 5, one of the early images that John is given in his apocalypse is that there are these scrolls that need to be opened up so we can see what's inside of them. And John is so upset because there's no one worthy to open the scrolls. And so he's actually crying and crying because there's no one worthy to open the scrolls until he looks, and what does he see? He sees one like a lion from the tribe of Judah. But then he looks again, and the one who used to be a lion is now like a lamb that was slain. Because you see, Jesus fulfilled that prophecy that Daniel talked about, and he was worthy to be the lion and worthy to be praised and given all glory and honor because he was also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the next thing you see in that passage in Revelation chapter 4 is everybody bowing down before him, and thousands upon thousands gathered to worship. And what do they say? worthy to receive glory and honor and power and dominion, just like Daniel said that they would. And here's kind of the point. Here's kind of the big level thought about that. Jesus Christ is the center of our Christian faith. Don't let anybody take you away from the center of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of human history, and Jesus is at the center of every apocalypse. When God pulls back the curtains and allows us to see with spiritual eyes the things that are taking place in the middle of it, Jesus is greater than everything. Some 500 years and probably four different world empires before Jesus was ever born, who's at the center of Daniel's prophecy? It's Jesus. And so because of that, he says, do not be afraid Daniel, I know this stuff is scary, but you don't have to be afraid because you have the Son of Man who is greater than all these things. In fact, there's this really cool passage in Daniel chapter 10. Because as I mentioned, Daniel doesn't often understand his own visions. And oftentimes they're very scary to him. And in Daniel 10, he has one of these visions and it's kind of scary to him and he, he doesn't know what it means. And so he actually leads out in prayer and he prays to God for understanding. And, and there's a number of things that God says, but in verse 18 of chapter 10, he's given this vision. He says, again, the one who looked like a man, it's that son of man, came and in his fear and his trouble, the son of man touched me. 
and gave me strength. And he said, do not be afraid. You who are highly esteemed, he said, peace, be strong now, be strong. And you know, that is what some of us need to hear today, loud and clear, because it's so easy to be overwhelmed. Maybe overwhelmed by all of these things and all of the things of the world and this crazy world that we live in, but maybe just overwhelmed by the struggles of your life the struggles of your work, the struggles of your health, the struggle of the restlessness in your, your thoughts, the restlessness in your soul. And what you need to hear is the Son of Man is greater than all those things. And like he comes to Daniel, he comes to us and he says, do not be afraid. He says, you are highly esteemed. I see you. I know you. I love you. So peace and be strong. And so Jesus, the Son of Man, is greater than everything. And he's greater in Daniel 7, but he's greater throughout all of of Scripture. And that brings us to the last point that we need to camp out on, and that is this. God and those that are on his side win in the end. Did you see that? The most holy people in Daniel 7 stand strong among all these things. In the midst of the chaos of Daniel's vision, the unchanging ancient of days. Now, the unchanging ancient of days speaks to the timeless nature of God's character. So, in other words, God existed before all of those kingdoms, and he exists after. In fact, God, the ancient of days, existed before creation, and he spoke creation into being. And when God spoke creation into a being, it was a, a, a beautiful and a perfect paradise, right? It was a, a, the, the, the glory of heaven and earth. And then we read in the Bible that God also gives his creation, made in his image, people free will to make choices. And mankind chooses to rebel against God. And the perfect creation, the perfect heaven and earth that God created is marred by sin. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the heaven and earth that God had originally intended. And we live in that time where that heaven and earth is marred by sin. But here's what we can be sure of. God, the ancient of days who existed before time, is also working to make a new heaven and a new earth where there will no longer be any sea. Right? And, and, they, and in that kingdom, it says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and God will be their God, and he will be with them. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And the one who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I have made all things new, which is what you read in the last chapters of the book of Revelation. So last week when it was like super hot here, um, Jenny and I got a chance. We went away with some uh, friends over to the, the coast and we were over in, in Morro Bay and it was a beautiful day and, and I was walking along the beach there and as I was walking along next to the water, there was what I assume was a, a brother and sister um, that were playing on the beach and they were making these sand castles and the little boy was right down where the water was coming in and out and the waves were coming in and out and he would make these sand castles and then the waves would come in and knock it down and so he'd build it back up again and the waves would come in and knock it down and back and forth he kept doing this and his sister um, apparently a little wiser uh, is up on the sand where it's flat and the water can't get to it and she says to him something like this why don't you come up here where it's safe why don't you come up here where we can build something that's not going to get knocked down And to me, that's a reminder of what God is doing, building his lasting kingdom in a place where the battle is over and all will be right forever and ever. Because in the win, in the end, God and those that are on his side win. 
So who is this kingdom for? That's a question we should ask. Daniel 7 addresses it when he talks about those that are, are connected to the Most High. But you also have this really interesting scene where in Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days is in this like courtroom scene. And once everybody's seated and everything's kind of defined, what does he do? But he opens up the books. In the book of Revelation, at the end of things, we see this book brought forth again. It's called the book of life. Sometimes it's called the Lamb's book of life because the names that are written in this book are those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, those who have said, yes, Jesus, I need your help. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I I can't get my way to heaven on my own, and so I need you. And so the Bible talks about those things um, being opened and and those names being written in the book of life. But then in Daniel uh, uh, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 20, it also says this. It says, uh, also, that those whose names were not found in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. And let's be honest, that's one of the more sobering things that we can read. And, and there'll be some that are really tempted, and I get this, really tempted to say, how could that be? How could God be so mean that he would let some go to an eternity apart from him in the lake of fire? But can, let me just reframe that. Because the better question that we should be asking is how could God be so merciful and kind that when we all deserved punishment, he allowed those who turned to him to be forgiven and to refine life and to have the promise of that eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth. And now, how does that happen? By receiving the grace of God's gift through Jesus Christ, which is as simple as saying, Jesus, I, I may not understand all of this, but I need you. I can't work my way to you. I can't be good enough. I can't do anything other than to put my trust in you because you can forgive my sins, make me clean. And one day then, all of the stuff is going to come and go, but I am secure in Christ. And that's what we see. In the end, I've read the end of the story. We just read parts of it. God wins and those that are on his side. And so my question to you this morning is, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? It's really the most important starting point. I shared at the beginning that, that when I read those books, even those fictional stories about what the end times may or may not look like in terms of kind of modern day events, but I remember that being a time of great spiritual growth for me because I was excited. I wanted to lean in. I wanted to grow closer to Christ. I wanted to, to grow in my character. I wanted to, to really draw close to, to Christ. And can I be honest? We've gone over a bunch of stuff here today. My prayer as one of your pastors is this that all of this talk would cause you to lean into God and say, I want to know you. I want to trust you more. I want to put my hope in you. And if you haven't taken that very first step of placing your faith in Christ, that that would be the starting point for you today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your amazing scripture. Father, passed down through the ages, full of all kinds of truth. And we thank you even for the, that stuff that is, is kind of difficult to understand because it reveals a, your plan. And so I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters as we consider these things, that we would live a life that is ready for your return whenever that would be. And Lord, that we would lean in and draw close to you, that we would be a people that love others, that, that draw others to you. 
And Father, I pray for those who've maybe never taken that step, that even today they would pray, pray, pray a prayer, something like this. Jesus, come into my life. I open my heart up to you. I need your forgiveness, and so I repent from my sin, and I turn toward you, knowing that you are the one that could bring eternal life. I want to begin that relationship with you today. And that, that others who maybe prayed that prayer and began that commitment before, maybe would turn back and draw close to you, maybe for the hundredth time, and that we would find the grace and the power of the Son of Man worthy to receive glory and honor and power and dominion sharing his love and his grace with us. We pray this and we commit it all to you in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.